We're in our fourth week of Romans. And uh, last week we talked about what bad news Paul was coming to share with us. And that's how he opens it. And he's following the teaching of Jesus. Jesus really wanted the people to know that they were sick, that they were spiritually sick. And it was actually a loving thing to do to tell them the truth because he dealt with a culture, his people, that felt like they were okay with God because they were God's chosen people, which is awesome and beautiful. But they thought that made them okay and right in God's sight. And Jesus taught that that wasn't the case. And Paul backs this up. And he's, he's uh, writing this book to a, a group uh, of believers in Rome. And he hasn't visited them. And what's beautiful about this book, it's like the book that Paul says, here's what the Christian faith is. Rather than a lot of his writings, which are letters to churches dealing a lot of times, beautiful theology in a lot of his other letters, but, but dealing a lot of times with very specific issues that, that they were dealing with within that congregation. And, and, and this is just like, okay, I don't know if I'm going to, I want to come see you guys in, in Rome. I've heard about you. But if I don't, I want to send you this book that just gives you, lays it out. Here's the gospel. Here's the Christian message. This is what Jesus is about. And this is why it's such a powerful book. One of the most powerful books we've seen in Christian history um, and, and the effect that it's had. Um, so this morning, we're going to look, and I'm like, I'm forgetting a little bit. In, in your program, it's blank. We're going to have some major points that if you, if you like to take no, notes and stuff, we invite you to, to jot those out. Usually we kind of do a, a fill-in-the-blank thing. Um, but it's kind of more bad news. Last week I said, hey, it's going to be a bad message, bad sermon. Some of you guys were like, we've come to expect that. Um, no, but bad in the sense that, you know, Paul is sharing the bad news so we know how good the good news is. And he deals with, he begins, and I think this is a key verse in Romans 1.18. He says, but God shows his anger or his wrath from heaven against all sinful wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then he goes and talks about, like, there's some people out there doing things that are obviously against what God wants. We would call them immoral or people who are evil or what. Or evil. Is that evil? I don't know. So, so there's, he deals first with, okay, there's people out there, and we know those people, those sinners, those people living in a way that is just so contrary to what God desires. And he points out, those people, guess what? They need Jesus. And then, last week, we really focused on looking at people who some would say, hey, these are good people. Like, because like, what we do is we compare, right, with one another instead of comparing to God. And so compared to other people, these are pretty good people. These are pretty good citizens, pretty good neighbors, pretty good, uh, you know, wives and husbands. And, and, you know, they're not perfect, but, but them avoiding some of the bigger sins as we rate them in our human perspective. Well, here's some good people and here's some bad people. And what does Paul say? Those good people need some Jesus, need all of Jesus, not just some. <laughs> I was trying to be cool and say, need them some Jesus or something. But, but no, they need Jesus, who, who, people who think they're good. And then today, what we're going to look at is religious people need Jesus. And so that's what he really focuses on, and his religious people. And he can speak uh, from a place of 
completely being able to relate. He is one of these religious people. He calls himself the Pharisee among Pharisees. And those, you know, the people who are just considered elite religious people in his culture and day and time. All right, so that's, that's what he's going to deal with. God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't grade on a curve is kind of the point he's trying to get across. We grade on a curve. We look at our lives, and even us religious people, if I could say us, I think there's some people here in this room who, who could more identify with this third category than the first two that we went over. And that, that we can come up with, in our own religious way, a way of somehow God grades on the curve. And that we look at our own lives and we think, well, we, not only are we good people, and we're not these real evil people, category one, but man, we go to church. Look at us. It snowed and we came to church. We, we serve at church. We give to church. We do church things. We know church information. And so Paul kind of addresses those things. So I think it could be challenging to, to, to myself and, and maybe you here this morning. Um, so he doesn't grade on a curve. Here's a good illustration that I used to use with, with teenagers. And, and I think um, it's, it's helpful a little bit in, in trying to get God's perspective on the issue. And it's like a race from Hawaii, my buddy from Hawaii, uh, well, really from California to Hawaii. And this is a swimming race. And God's standing in Hawaii. And we're standing on the shores of California. And they say, go. He says, go. <laughs> Who's going to win that race? I mean, there could be some people who are just you know, really strong swimmers. And they make it, you know, a couple miles out there. I mean, there's people who swim across the English Channel, right, from, from England to, to France. That's a long ways. It's nothing compared <laughs> to California to Hawaii. And then there's some people who might, you know, just make it out, you know, a few swimming pool lengths or something. And then there's some people who jump in and say, what's the use? And blah, 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 blah. You know, why suffer? Those guys are just going to suffer. There's no way I'm making it to Hawaii. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of like if, if you don't make it all the way, it doesn't matter how, how much short you came. It's just like there's one, if you make it all the way, then you're good if you don't. And we compare ourselves with how much farther out we made it from California in our own perspectives. And God's looking back at his perspective going, you all come very, 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 very short of the goal a perfection, of, of approaching my, uh, where, where I stand in perfection because God wants to have a perfect relationship with you and he wants you to be with him for eternity in a perfect place. And, and, and so that's the requirement and that's the level. And so Paul is trying to bring this home and let people understand. And, and then we go, oh, this is why we desperately need Jesus. This is why we need his perfection his righteousness, his worthiness. And so um, one thing, the other thing we want to look at, you'll talk about this a little bit in your life groups. If you're in a life group, we kind of discuss the message. And, and, and the point is not to just sit around and, you know, pontificate about, you know, how Ben messed up things or uh, how whatever, but, but how we can live this out. That's the goal of life groups, to connect, make deep, strong relationships uh, within your church family, but then also say, okay, so what? Does this affect my life? And, and let me gather around other people that are going to help encourage me to help really make a change in my life and live out the beautiful principles of God's word. And so as we look at that, I want to point out something, because this passage, I think, highlights it, that, 
that Paul is a unique character. We talked about how sometimes he writes in a sophisticated but sometimes almost confusing way. I, I would say, I think I can go that far to say that. That, that he's, he's this guy who's, who's so smart. He's got kind of this Ivy League type education. And, and he's, he's familiar with the, the Stoic philosophies and the Greek philosophies and the way that they wrestle with things and think about things. And you see these arguments that he makes. And then I think he's got, you know, a little, uh, some attention issues, which I can relate to. And you're like, Paul, come on back to me. What, what, what you saying, man? You were talking about this. Now you're over on, on this. And then you're over on this. And then you're over on this. And, and, and I think sometimes we could say, well, how do we view God's word in light of that? If Paul is like, you know, sometimes confusing, um, you know, to some people who might approach uh, how he's trying to argue things, how does this all work that this is God's word? And, and would, is, are these the exact words of God? Like, how does God give us his word? Because here's what we claim at Lifestone, that God's word is inerrant. And what that means is that it is without error. Actually, if you press that meaning, it's, it's impossible. If this is really God's word, God in his nature, it's impossible to be in error if this is God's word. And 2 Timothy is kind of the classic verse that points this out in the nature of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed, a beautiful picture, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We believe that God has given us everything we need to know him and to follow him. And, and in that, that, that good question that we can ask of like, well, in the different ways and the different people and the different times and circumstances that he gives us this word, don't we have to, you know, could it be that pure? Could it be that, that true and that, that, that perfect, really? And, and so here's, here's a good illustration, I think. God chose to use people to give us his word. So these people are different instruments. And God uses the, the characteristics of those instruments to give us his word. So as we have all these talented people, you know, Craig's up here. It looks like he's got 12 fingers. And then I'm like, no, that's just 12 strings. How cool is that? 12-string guitar. But, you know, these different instruments, a musician who writes a piece of music, it, the music doesn't change and in this sense, the meaning of what God is telling us doesn't change, but it may come out and sound different depending what, on what instrument it's being played on, right? So it's played on the guitar. It sounds different than if it's played on my, my musical instrument. What, you guys, I am very good in kazoo. So if I play the same music on my kazoo, it's going to sound pretty different <laughs> than the guitar, the keyboard, or, or a piano or something like that. And I think that's just, that's how God has chosen to do it. He uses different instruments, but his truth is, is, is not in question. His truth is, is brought forth to us, and, and I think there's tons of evidence, supernatural evidence that he's given us that we can trust in God's word. Terms. I want to give you a couple of terms before we jump into this Romans passage, because it talks about two things that I want to make sure you're familiar with, and it's the law and that is 613 laws of Moses. These are the laws that, the Old that, are, that we find in the Old Testament that God's people say, okay, this is what we're trying to follow to be right with God. Now, what they did is they took each of those 613 and they wrote volumes and volumes attached to those. 
to make him real legalistic and even more complicated than the 613. And, and, and you know, different leaders and different rabbis would have different takes on how you follow those all correctly. And it was just a lot of legalism, a lot of rules, a lot of laws. And so um, that's what they refer to. And, and God's law is not bad. Jesus says it's not bad. He said he came to fulfill it. That Jesus is the only one who fulfilled it perfectly. And the law is, as the Bible says, it's like a mirror or a schoolmaster, a school teacher. It, it reveals to us that we've come short. What the law is, when you look in a mirror and you're like, oh, <laughs> I need to comb my hair or I need to, you know, fix this or, you know, oh, I got breakfast still on my face. Like the, the, the law reveals our shortcoming. And reveals that, that, that we that God is holy and perfect and pure. And, and because there's, last week we talked about two ways to get saved, to be right with God. There's two ways in the Bible. One, follow the law perfectly. Two, <laughs> depend on Jesus and, and his perfection. And so um, the first one's impossible, just in case you're trying to reach or strive after that. Um, it says we all come short. And so anyways... Those are the two. And then the other one is circumcision. And that one, I, it just reminds me, I was a youth minister for a long time. At one point, um, it was funny. Where's Adam? Adam's back there. I don't know if you remember this. We went through, Adam was in my youth ministry back in the day. And, and uh, we went through a, a series that just kind of went through the Bible. And we had a whole section on law and a whole section on the Old Testament. And they, they, were, they referenced circumcision a lot. If you don't know what that is, just, you know, ask your mom or something. I don't know. But these, these poor, we had these uh, little junior high girls <laughs> and a big group of them, and my wife was teaching them and, and, and other ladies. And, and this, this is, okay, what is circumcision? And, and you know, got to teach them, okay, here's what it is. It's a sign of belonging to God on the eighth day of a male, uh, a male baby's life. Um, they perform this, uh, this medical procedure on the boy, and um, the girls, none of the junior high girls had a clue what it was. <laughs> and so that was just, do you remember that interesting, interesting day at church that morning? Because then they started asking, we had all these youth volunteers uh, teaching different grades and stuff, and they would ask all the, the wives, so is your husband? Is your... We're like, oh, that's just... Ah, way too awkward, you know. So let's stick with this. A sign belonging to God, all right? But it's important because of, of we'll develop that and see why that's an important thing that we need to know what that means, all right? So Romans 2.17, let's look at it. I hope you have some copy of Scripture. I'll let you know if you've got it on your phone or whatever. If you want a free Bible, please grab one in the lobby. Um, it starts out and it says this. You who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. So where's the reliance? Where's the trust being placed in the law and in this special connection? Because God did have a special connection uh, with the Jewish people. They are his, his chosen people uh, in that sense. And in verse 18, you know what he wants. You know what is right because you have been taught his law. You have been taught his law, religious people, specifically Jewish people. You know God's law and truth. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant 
and teach children the ways of God. For you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. This confidence, this pride, and, and there's nothing lacking. And they're just putting all their confidence in that, that God has revealed everything in, in this law. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. He says, you say you don't break the law, but then he just says, you do. You really do. And I think that's exactly what Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount. All these people who thought, yeah, I'm fulfilling God's law. I'm good. Me and God are fine. And Jesus says, okay, you think you've, you've followed the law. Let's just break it down to the big ones, the, the big ten. Okay, you say you haven't murdered, but do you have hatred for someone in your heart? Then in God's eyes, that's the same as murdering because your heart desires that, that, that towards that person. You say you've never committed adultery, and Jesus said if you've lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. So what does Jesus do? He raises the standard and of what they were thinking, that they were fine with God. And so, um, and, and why is Jesus doing that? To be mean? I thought Jesus was like this really nice guy who had like little lambs following him. He had this cool robe, some cool hippie hair, and was just like love people. Well, that was loving, to share the truth with people, to let them know their true condition. And Jesus often, he's not, you know, he doesn't, he's full of grace and full of truth is how he's described. And so he was revealing that because it's important for them to know that so they would know, oh, we need you. We need a savior. We need what you're going to do on the cross instead of their, his people not knowing that they needed him. Um, okay, so it goes on. Uh, where are we? In verse 20. He says, you, you've done that. Can, you've uh, 24. No wonder the scripture says the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. And I think that's super revealing. Okay, you say you don't sin. Do you really not sin? You don't sin in this area. You don't break God's law in this area. You, we know you do. Here's, here's evidence that we know you do. Non-Jewish community, that's all Gentiles are. If you're non-Jewish, you're Gentile. The Gentiles they have a, you've given God a bad name because they see the hypocrisy in your life. Like it's so odd. Why, do the, why don't these Gentiles uh, recognize the one true God and, and think what you are following is true? Because you don't follow it. You don't, you, you fall short in these areas. So that's pointed out in verse 25. He goes on to say, the Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but don't obey it. And so Paul is pointing out again, what are you putting your confidence and trust in? A ceremony? That you guys do, okay, we do this ceremony on the eighth day for a male. So that means that ceremony makes us right with God. He's like, no, there, there could be people who don't even do that ceremony, but they follow God. And who's, who's right before God? 
28, for you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And he's getting back to what God's really desiring is that he, he wants to change our hearts. He wants to change, the, change our motivation. He wants to have a relationship with us. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And it's only the Spirit of God who comes in and truly can change us. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. We, we completely change our what we're passionate about and what, what we're trying to, uh, who we're trying to please rather than ourselves or others, we, we have a changed heart to want to honor and praise God. Goes on to say, then what's the advantage of being a Jew? And then he starts going into his like overthinking mode, I think. He's like, all right, well, here's the question. Here's my natural question because he's a guy who has, you know, 100 questions for every subject that's brought up. So he goes, here's what some of you guys are going to be thinking. What's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Okay, what's the value of being Jewish? What's the value of doing these, these ceremonial things? And he says, yes, yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. That how wonderful to be a part of God's people who he worked in and through and revealed himself to. That's beautiful. Number three, true, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful does not mean God will be unfaithful. Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scripture says about him, you will be proven right in what you say, and you will win your case in course. Just fleshes out more of that idea. And the Jewish people didn't always follow God perfectly, but that, doesn't, that, that was their decision to, to not follow God, and, but, but a true, perfect God did reveal himself through the Jewish people. Verse 5, but some might say our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Now, now this, I'll just be honest with you. I'll be like, okay, Paul, tracking, tracking, whoa. Okay, all right, but this is who God, this is the instrument that God used in a powerful way. And so he goes on to talk about this distorted uh, uh, justification that, that people who know God's truth use to continue to live how they want to live, really. Some might say our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair, then, for him to punish us? We see the same thinking, actually, uh, in the church in Corinth. Like, hey, if I sin more and I'm more evil, then more of God's grace, more of God's forgiveness has to be present or be applied, and isn't that like just, man, God's so good because he can forgive even these horrendous sins, so I better keep doing these horrendous sins. Do you see the weird logic there? And Paul, again, he says in that to the Corinths, Corinths no, 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 don't, don't, that is not. And it goes back to what he just talked about. The Spirit of God comes into our life to change us from the inside out. And you're getting hung up on trying to justify your sin in some weird, twisted way. When God changes your heart to desire the things of him. And so um, he says, uh, goes on to say, isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? I'm just living like this so that it makes God look better. I, look, I live worse so God looks better. Weird. 
this is merely a human point of view, is what Paul says. Only us can distort, you know, and come up with that. Isn't, isn't that I've heard and I've used some really sophisticated justifications to do what I want to do. Are you with me? Anybody else? Um, maybe I'm just the only one. Verse 6, of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? God doesn't do that. God is consistent and fair and, and perfect. But someone might still argue that he keeps going. That's enough, Paul, for me. I can move on. But okay, Paul, how can God condemn me, a sinner, if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some people even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. If you, you know, he's speaking to a group of people who twist the grace and forgiveness of God so much. If you are in that camp, you are not surrendering your life to God. You are not putting your trust in him and allowing him to, because that is not God's plan. That is not what God desires. And so that's kind of a different thing. But, but here's, let's, let's write out, for you guys who want to fill in some, something on your blank sheet there, um, it'll be up here. False hopes. This religious category, this third category of people are having, they have the same false hopes. Why are we given this? Hey, we're not Jewish. Does this apply to us? Yes. I think just religious people and, and some of us, hey, we came to church and it's snowing. Um, some of us may fall into this category, and here's some false hopes religious people can put, uh, put their hope in. Belief in God's existence. And I struggled with exactly how to phrase this and put this, but belief in God's existence. When I was a kid, grew up in church, I really thought that was the difference. That was like, hey, you're a Christian. If you believe in God, I had a Santa Claus mentality of God and debates on the place, place, uh, playground you know, like, ooh, you believe in God, you don't believe in God, you believe in Santa Claus, you don't believe, you're not going to get presents, you're not going to go to heaven, you know. Just the same thinking of the existence of God is what God, and I, I run into people who, who often will, you know, we have a discussion about someone and where they are spiritually, like here's my spouse or here's my, my friend or whoever, and, you know, we try to put some hope or confidence in, well, they believe in God, you know, because, you know, we're talking about, you know, do they know Jesus and, you know, would they want to be a part of a Jesus community here, people who know Jesus and stuff like that or learn more about him or something? Well, no, but don't worry about them because they believe in God. And I think in all my experience of talking with people like that, that's what they're talking about. They just aren't atheists. And the Bible says if you're just not atheists, that doesn't help you. <laughs> I mean, there's one, well, we'll get to the, that is good to have one step of like, okay, you believe he exists. That's good. We'll look at a verse that directly applies to that. James 2.19 puts it in a strong way. You say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. That verse rocked my world <laughs> when I was in college, you know, and I just had this simple, silly idea that if I wasn't an atheist, I was a Christian, and the Bible clearly says, no, 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 that's, that's not the case, or if I believed in, in my non-atheist view that the, that the God that is real is 
Jesus and the right God. No, not just the, this intellectual assent that he exists, and I believe that. It's a trusting belief. It's putting your confidence in him. It's saying when I stand in judgment before God, I'm not trusting in just I believe you exist. I'm trusting what Jesus did, his righteousness, his price on the cross, and, and what he did there. I'm trusting in that to make me right with God. In Hebrews 11.6, it says, It is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. So it's interesting, the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's not enough to just believe that God exists. It's this trusting belief that you know his character and you know what he's done and you're putting your confidence in that, not just that he exists. So it's a different kind of faith. And this, we get hung up on this. We, we run into people who have been taught something different. We have people who throw out you know, passages that talk about you know, well, are you saying, Ben, that like the, the kind of faith you have to have is, is works-based or something or works? Like, and we have that big debate. How, does that, how, does, how do those two coincide? And, and the kind of faith that's displayed, that's shown, and in Hebrews it's, it's making the statement, and then it has the great hall of faith in Hebrews of all these, these people who had great faith. This is the kind of faith that God that God desires of us. And these people were like Noah. Okay, you remember some of these Bible stories? Some, most of you are probably familiar. What did Noah do for 100, over 100 years? He built an ark. <laughs> what? That wasn't like a weekend DIY thing? The kind of faith. He's in the hall of faith with something for years and years and years he showed faith. Um, the, in the Hall of Faith, we have Abraham. What did Abraham did? He left his home and followed God's direction and followed things like, okay, God said, okay, do this, this ceremony of circumcision to show that, that you're, you're my chosen people. Uh, Moses followed God. And so, you know, we, and then we, we look in the New Testament, and it says faith without works is dead. And so a lot of people would say, look, your works save you too. And that's not the case because the Bible clearly teaches us that we're saved not by works, but by faith. So how how does this, how do we put these two together? And what the Bible is saying, there's this type of faith, this genuine trust. When you really have faith, when you really trust God, then it results in a changed heart, a changed attitude. The Spirit is then in your life. And with the Spirit in your life, we can ignore Him. We can say, hey, I'm still trying to do my own thing. But there's going to be some indication in your life that you've, you've taken a new direction. And why the Bible makes a big deal about like, hey, if there's no works associated, if there's no evidence associated to you saying that you have faith in God, it may be just this kind of faith like the demons have. It may, it may just be this faith that Hebrews says, well, okay, I just believe that God exists. It may not be a faith, a trusting faith, because that's the kind of faith. It's a faith that I, I'm putting my trust uh, in, in Jesus. And so that's what that's trying to point out. We're not just paying lip service. We're not just saying we're, we have faith to, because we grew up and we're trying to make our, our parents happy or something like that. 
In 1 John 2, 2 through 4, it says, He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the world. I love how this is the preface to what the, the rest of what I'm going to read. That Jesus, he is the sacrifice. He is the one. He paid for the sins, for all the sins of the entire world, if you want to. Like, that is a complete covering and payment for your sins that make, that make you stand guilty before God. Jesus paid that price. And then it goes on, and we, ha- we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commands, not perfectly, because we see lots of examples that that's, that's, while we're still in this world, we still have this sinful nature attached to us. Thankfully, in heaven, we won't have this sinful nature attached to us. But it says, uh, a person that doesn't obey God's commands, there's like, you could just say doesn't at all. That person is a liar and not living in the truth. So Jesus pays for it all. It's all his payment, 100%. But when he does that, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and starts changing things. And we just, you know, want to make sure someone's not confused that I just did some ceremony and that's what saves me. No, we're trusting in Jesus. So false hope is just belief in God's existence. Second false hope, quickly, is biblical knowledge. And, and I think that just equates to what he's saying in verses 17 through 24. Like, okay, you know God's law. You know God's truth. You have information about God. I'm saved because I got, you know, 10 Bibles at home. And I know some, some theology. Um, John 13, 7 says, Now that you know these things, God will bless you if you do them. Hebrews 10, 26 Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there's no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There's only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and raging fire that will consume his enemies. And that's not to bring fear or doubt about someone who has made that decision because, again, like I say, there's, there's still there's this process that we become more like Jesus. We don't instantly become perfect. We still have this sinful nature that we struggle with. But, but when someone that's just so deliberate in their whole life and there's no change whatsoever, the Bible says you, you, you've, you've uh, rejected Jesus. And, and that is... What, what makes you saved or not saved, rejecting Jesus. And here's some indication where you, you may think you have accepted Jesus, like you inherited it or something. I've talked to those people. They're like, hey, I'm a Christian because my, my grandfather paved the, the parking lot of the Methodist church in town. I'm going, what? That's not something that passed down through the genes. It's a personal decision that you make. Um, the, the other false hope, the last one, the last false hope, religious rituals. Verse 25 through 28, Paul's like, okay, you think you're right with God because you've done this very important, something that would be, you know, really a marker of circumcision. Amos 5.21, God says, I hate all of your show and pretense and hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. Proverbs 15.8, the Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked but delights in the prayers of the upright. It's like if I, okay, good husband, bad husband. I've got a bunch of girlfriends in a lot of cities that I go and travel to throughout the week. Confession time. 
this is not true, okay? <laughs> you guys are like, oh, I came on that Sunday, what? No. But if that were the case, am I a good husband or a bad husband? You, crowd participation, go ahead. Bad husband. But you got, I didn't tell the whole story. On Valentine's Day, I went all out. And I, I got an incredible present for my wife. And on her birthday, I never forget her birthday. And an awesome anniversary. So am I a good husband or bad husband? Bad husband. I'm still a bad husband. And that's what God's heart is saying. You know, you just do these, you, you think just doing sacrifices or, or somehow makes you right with me. No, you've missed it. You've misunderstood what God has called us to. So don't depend on, don't put your trust and confidence in, well, I got my wife a, a present so I can, or just maybe how you treat her. I've run into that. Like I have no respect. I, I'm not, I don't cherish my wife, uh, but I got her a birthday present. Same deal. That's not loving. Um, you, you're, you're missing uh, the relationship that God's called us to. But depending on, well, I, I'm just depending on and putting my trust in, in just me doing a ceremonial thing. But here's what we'll end with. Relig- well, first, religious people need Jesus just as much as everyone else. So we got those three categories of people, right? People that, okay, they're just living in complete rebellion to God's laws and rules. People who, hey, they're pretty good. They're trying to follow most of them. And then religious people, they're doing all this religious stuff with it. They go to church. They give to church. They serve at church. Man, all three of those all need Jesus just the same is what Paul is saying. But he ends it also by saying trusting Jesus results in these beautiful, awesome things. Let me share them with you. Oh, these may sound familiar. Belief in God's existence. That's a great starting point to start a relationship with God. That's not a bad thing, but that's not what we put our confidence in and think what a relationship with God looks like and what biblical faith is. Trusting in Jesus and his righteousness to be credited for me is is how the Bible puts it. And uh, so that's a good thing. Number two, biblical knowledge. That's a good thing. That's an awesome thing. That's a beautiful thing to have in your life. Because that helps, but that, having biblical knowledge, isn't what saves you. And then the last thing, religious rituals. Man, awesome. Jennifer and Maddie up here sharing with you guys that they have put their trust in Jesus. Beautiful thing to celebrate baptism. But that baptism and that ceremony and getting in that cold water. Sorry, ladies, are you still shivering? (laughs) Oh, they're right in front of me. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) Um, That's not what saved them this morning. It was a decision that they made before that to put their trust in Jesus. And then that was a beautiful picture of what that was. So that's not what we put our trust in. It's what Jesus did for us.